What is up, kangaroo chasers? On this pod, we talk to a historian about the future. But first, let's go for some golden points. I'm Michael Carboni. This is episode 99 of the Chasing Kangaroos podcast. Kangaroo Chasers, episode 99. Unbelievable. I can't believe we've got this far. We're almost at the 100. And uh, joining me tonight, it's not the biggest tiger. Uh, last minute, had to pull out because he's interviewing someone very special for this podcast in a couple of weeks' time. So I've called him off the bench. He's uh, a good mate of mine. He's International Rugby League's number one fan and uh, my new business partner, Philip Brown. Phil, how you going, buddy? Yeah, I'm going good, Cubs. Thanks for having me on, mate. Thanks for thanks for when I when I messaged you to call you off the bench, you were Oztag refereeing, got home, had a shower, and straight on the phone to me. So I'm I'm very grateful, mate. Thanks for being here. That's uh, a pleasure. Always uh, happy to help out, mate. It's actually um, we'll get into some golden points in a minute, but um, I'm glad you're here with me because uh, last week we announced that uh, or we announced on this podcast that you and I were going into into business together. Um, of course, anyone that isn't aware, you you are one of the founders of uh, Mascot Browns, who were a big supporter of our show uh, pretty much since the beginning, almost all 99 of the episodes. And uh, But obviously yourself and Steve parted ways um, a, a few months ago. And um, we've, we've, you've approached me and we're sort of kicking off our own little merchandise, International Rugby League merch business. So I'm really pumped, man, and I'm, I'm glad you're here to maybe share the name of the brand and the website which are with our listeners well uh no very exciting uh times carbs and um as we both uh are fans of gary v uh he always he always says uh you know it's a it's the journey that's the uh that's the most exciting part and um yeah no i approached you because i knew i knew you're gonna we're gonna be great teammates and um yeah, so uh, should we reveal the, the name of the new business? Mate, drum roll, drum roll, please, and I'll let you reveal it, mate, because, uh, you know, you're, 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 the, you're the merchandise man. So the, so, uh, the name of uh, the business that Carbs and I will be running and supplying uh, uh, the biggest range of international rugby league merch the world has ever seen will be called Chasing Ruse. Chasing Ruse. It's Chasing Ruse. It'll be at chasingruse.com, and it uh, makes a lot of sense. The logo will look like this... this um, this podcast logo, so you guys will all be familiar with it. We just really like wanted wanted to eat, like grow that brand and and that brand recognition. Um, hopefully, you guys like it. ChasingRoos.com. If you go there now, there'll be a landing page. Um, we're working behind the scenes on the website. We're going to launch with I think about thirteen nations to begin with, probably around March, maybe a little bit earlier. Phil, we'll see how we go. 
but 13 nations to begin with, and then we'll just keep growing nations, clubs, uh, and improving from there. So, um, yeah, encouraging all of you guys to support us and help us support International Rugby League as well through ChasingRiz.com. So we, we set a target. Um, so my uh, 40th birthday, geez, I'm getting old carbs. My, 40, <laughs> my 40th birthday is on the 16th of February. Um, so that was sort of a target. But um, So and it'll, we'll launch in between my birthday and the 1st of March, hopefully, if uh, all goes to plan. And um, should, we, should we let let the listeners know why we why we went with Chasing Roos yes. instead of Chasing Kangaroos? Um I thought the Jillaroos are world number one in the in the in the female game, and um, and uh, the Kiwis are number one in the in the men's. But um, obviously, the the all all conquering Australian Kangaroos are always up there. World Cup champions, so, obviously, most recently too. So still, the world's still chasing both the Kangaroos and the Jillaroos. So sense. we so we thought it would be uh, a great name to just to just be chasing roos. So, um, yeah, very exciting times, and I, I just can't wait to sink my teeth in uh, to this new venture. Hopefully one day it's called Chasing Barty or Chasing Kumuls. We'll have to change the name, but we'll, we'll just we'll see how we go, mate. But, um, yeah, exciting times, man. We'll get into some golden points in a sec, but um, I, I just, yeah, want to thank you for asking me to be a part of it. Every time I see you, you're wearing a Toronto Wolfpack jersey or a New York Rugby League jersey or a Fiji uh, polo or something like that, and the stories you tell me about people recognizing that and saying, Oh, wow. Do they, do they play rugby league over there? That's awesome. Just giving that recognition, obviously the, the nations and the clubs whose, whose kit we're selling, they get some kickback from that as well. And, um, we're also going to be announcing our very first sponsorship of a national team, probably in about the next week or two as well. And that'll be the first of hopefully many. So, um, the whole point of this is to, you know, support international rugby league. And um, we hope the kangaroo chasers get right behind us as well. So it's exciting times, mate. And I'm glad you're I'm glad you're on the journey with me. Oh, cheers, cheers Carl. But uh, I just I just want to quickly add to that. Um, so we will be announcing uh, a sponsorship of an international side uh, very soon, which is really exciting. Uh, we also want to put money back into the grassroots um, part of the game as well. So we're going to be sponsoring a just a junior team, maybe like an under sixes or an under sevens uh, team this year as well. Um, and I just wanted to say, Carbs, like when I was living in London for 10 years and, um, you know, I've I got to admit I'm not a big uh, rugby union fan. Um, I don't mind the sevens, but I don't really watch rugby union too much. But yeah. living, living in London, it's it's quite um, – it's quite – it surrounds you quite a lot. Um, and the only time I knew the Six Nations were on is when I'd go to pubs and you'd just see jerseys everywhere and I mm-hmm. thought – We've got to do this for rugby league. So when when Australia play New Zealand, I'd love to see lots of kangaroos jerseys, you know, in downtown Pitt Street, Circular Key. Um, you know, if the, if the if the Kiwis host the game in Auckland against Tonga, it'd be great to see lots of Kiwi jerseys around. Um, but yeah, when I was in London, you'd yeah, in Six Nations time, you'd see England jerseys, Scotland jerseys, Welsh jerseys, and I'd be like, okay, so I know there's a game on. Yeah. So, so it sort of was growing their game by association just by. You know, someone's seen the jersey, so that was sort of, um, you know, the more international rugby league merch we can get out there, uh, yeah, it's only going to be a a positive for the game. Love it, mate. Well, let's get into some golden points because I don't want this to be a big ad for for chasingaroos.com. But, um, mate, uh, golden point. Let's start in India, where Bangalore made a winning start to rugby league in the Garden City, where they overcame the visitors from Kolkata, eighteen to sixteen, in a thriller. 
Um, did you see this one, mate, all the rugby league action happening over in India? I, I just saw the tweet with, with the results, but um, I, I, it's going from strength to strength. And um, the West Tigers chairman's over there as the high commissioner, I believe, or the ex-West Tigers chairman. Yeah, Barry, um, Barry O'Farrell, I think. Was he Was he the chairman, Barry? He was, a pro, he was the premier of New South Wales. Is that who you're talking about? Yeah, I think he was on the West Tigers board um, at one stage. But, yeah, he's um, he's been supporting it as well, and it just seems like it's uh, it's going great. And, um, yeah, uh, it's fantastic to see. Yeah, early days, but obviously, you know, it's the second tournament that they've had. We heard last week with Big T's interview that uh, there will be a few every every three months is the plan for this year, and yeah, may they continue. I had a number of questions after last week's episode as well from listeners asking me um, about the Indian Rugby League Federation's relationship with the Indian Jungle Cats. So I don't know if you've seen this Jungle Cats side uh, in the last 12 months or so, or maybe 24 months now, Phil, but the Jungle Cats is basically, and I think this was mentioned on the episode on in Big T's interview as well, the Jungle Cats were basically and are basically more of a heritage like Aussie and New Zealand base um, operation. Uh, yep. not, it's not the same as the Indian Rugby League Federation, but they do have a working relationship and they'll continue to do so. Pretty much all the developing nations have something like that in play where you've got your, your heritage-based dysphora who um, help out the domestic game in their, in you know in from where they come from, uh, so to speak, in some way. Sometimes it works really well. Other times it doesn't, as we've heard many times on this pod. Uh, but, yeah, the Jungle Cats and Indian Rugby League Federation certainly looking to... to help each other out at this point. So it's awesome, awesome stuff. That's nice. No, fantastic. And, um, yeah, no, I did, I did uh, hear about the Jungle Cats um, and, and yeah, a lot of their players play in Auckland, I believe, with a few scattered throughout Australia. So it's great that there's um, some Indian Heritage players with some some fantastic rugby league um, experience. Make golden point. Let's go to Russia, where you would have seen this uh, over the last couple of days, where an ex- exhibition match was played between Sparta and Grand it's the first rugby league game in Russia since lockdown restrictions began uh, probably about a year ago. Uh, kits and equipment were supplied by the All Golds from the Southern Conference in the UK, who you might be familiar with, mate. So big shout out to to um, to the All Golds. Um, and um, yeah, it was just awesome. I, I don't know if you saw the photos online, Phil, but what about that snow? I don't know if I could do it. Oh, I, I saw I saw the photos and it was probably like... Uh you know, ankle high snow and, um, you know, run, running and tackling through that. It's... Uh, I guess um, the only thing we could compare it to is playing like rugby league on the on soft sand on the beach or something like it. Yeah, it's unreal. But um, obviously, obviously, a lot colder over there. But uh, yeah, I, um, I couldn't do it, mate. And I, the biggest comment I saw online was, "How do they find the line? We're like, what are they doing?" <laughs> so I, I don't know the answer to that question. But we'll have to find out from our mate John Christie over there. And um, it, it's just good to see rugby league back in Russia. I know we did speak to John on episode fifty-seven of the pod a long time ago. Now from Russia with scrums. Uh, where he outlined some plans uh, which were COVID affected, but it's good to see that they're back on their feet. Hopefully things can kick off in Russia again. And we'll hopefully speak, I'll have to speak to John again soon just to see where they're at and how things are progressing. So maybe we'll try and get a get an update on the pod very soon. Mate, um, Golden Point, let's, let's go closer to home, especially for you living at Tamworth at the moment, Golden Point, New Zealand. And um, I don't have to say much about it, mate. Roger Tuovasa-Shek. He's gone to New Zealand Rugby Union. I believe you met him during the week. Were you able to um, maybe persuade him last minute or obviously <laughs> did you have to chat to him? Well, I, um, I was very lucky because um, 
Nathan Brown, after he left the Newcastle Knights, he worked for Australian Oztag last year where I was employed. And so we we were colleagues and we worked up, um, you know, a good friendship over time. And um, Nathan was really kind enough to invite me to have dinner with the Warriors on Saturday night. where where they did have they did have a function to the public on Friday, which I, I did attend, but he invited me um, to have dinner with the team on Saturday, and uh, I did get to chat to Roger. But um, you know, I, I I can't persuade him to, to change his mind. But it's he's going to be a huge loss to rugby league. He's such a great um, ambassador for our game. Like the way he conducts himself, um, he's he's a fantastic captain. He's a fantastic athlete, and. You know, I really hope we see him back in rugby league, um, you know, in a few years' time. It's funny, you know, like the the sentiment seems to be like good on him, you know, which I think is a sign of the times. And I, I think as rugby league fans in the past, we've seen guys like, I remember when Wendell and Matty Rogers and, and Lottie Tequiri and those guys went over to rugby union. It was a big deal and a lot of rugby league fans sort of were up in arms about it. But look, good on Roger, like go for it. Like if he wants to try and play for the the All Blacks, like it's every Kiwi kid's dream. Um, he played rugby union in his younger years as well. So good on him. Go for it. Hopefully he can get there. And uh, when he comes back <laughs> and plays, and I was joking about it on, on Twitter the other day, when he comes back to play for the Roosters in five years' time, it'll be, <laughs> world, it'll be world news. So uh, Yeah, um, um, well, well, we can – a positive if, if he does come back to our game is uh, he will have – you know, support around the globe, um, being an all black and yeah, like you, you look at those players that you mentioned that cross codes and they, they get a lot of rugby, rugby union people follow them on, on their social media. And then when they come back to rugby league, they're still following them. And, um, yeah, hopefully they, they watch, they follow these guys in their careers and watch some of their games in rugby league and, and enjoy what they see. Yeah. It is funny how we, um, I don't know, maybe we, we always say, oh yeah, well, they'll come back. They'll come back, but good luck to, good luck to Rog. And, um, yeah, nice bloke uh, from all reports. You know him better than I do, obviously. And um, you guys are good mates. But um, oh, I don't know him too well, but I, <laughs> I just know he's a, he's a, he's a ge- really a gentleman. He's a lovely guy. Mate, the other big one was, speaking of Kiwis moving around, um, uh, Benji to Souths. Did that shock you at all? Well, um, yeah, I did. I, um, I, I heard rumours, um, you know, a month or two ago that he was off to Hull, I believe. Yeah. Um, but then uh, in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, I don't think he's going to go because he's always stated that he wanted to stay in Sydney because of his media commitments. Yeah. Um, and I did. I do know that he has a close relationship with Wayne Bennett because remember when uh, Wayne Bennett gave him a lifeline to go to the Broncos for that season? Yeah, and they won a World Cup together with the Kiwis, don't forget. Yeah, 2008 World Cup. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I was shocked to see him at South, but, um, yeah, no, Benji Marshall's a, a legend of our game and, um, you know, I hope he does really well at South. And, um, yeah, who knows, he could go out um, a premiership winner. Yeah, maybe. I'm glad to see him get another opportunity. I, I certainly didn't think he was done, so I'm glad he got, he's got he got a shot. And South's colours seem to suit him, so good stuff, Bench. Um, was um, was the biggest T crying when he uh, heard that Benji was uh, leaving the West Tigers? I think Big T publicly would say um, that, you know, he's happy for Benji and is just glad to see him on the field for one more season. But then he would have went home, locked the door and yelled into a pillow and, and punched a wall or something like that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. But good on Benj. Uh, Golden Point, let's go back to Europe. So Golden Point, Norway. Uh, Norway Rugby League, they announced re- uh, last week as well that they're ready to get back on the field with their 2021 domestic season set to kick off. 
this May 29. They're going to have six clubs this year, so I think they've got one new club, uh, and it'll be split into two conferences. So uh, West Conference, uh, Southwest Conference will have the Sadness Raiders, the Hoggan Sun Sea Eagles, and the Stavanger Rugby Club. And then the North East Conference will have the Lillistrom Lions, the Oslo Capitals, and the Trodheim Rugby Club, which I believe are the newest club to Norway Rugby League. So good on them, mate. Um, not sure if you saw this. You always surprise me with your rugby league knowledge, and you, I feel like you're going to tell me you've like refereed a game in Norway or something like that. Is there any <laughs> crazy stories about Norway Rugby League, Phil? Well, there is actually, Carb. So um, a, good, a good mate of mine, and I'm sure he's a, an avid listener of the show, is uh, Warren Highleg. And um, Warren is a, a Queenslander who married a Norwegian girl and uh, lived in Norway for a number of years and set up Norwegian Rugby League. And um, whilst he was there, I was living in London and um, he used to run a tournament called the Scandinavian Nines and he he wanted some good referees to come over. I, I don't know why he called me, um, but he asked me to referee. Um, <laughs> well, I just and, guessed that. I didn't know you, you actually have refereed in Norway. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I, I flew, into, flew into Oslo and there was yeah. a club at the time playing called Tromso, yeah. which was um, – they were the most northern rugby league team in the world. Yeah. Um, and that's a place in Norway where they only in, – in some parts of the year, they only have one hour of sunlight, which I could, I could hardly imagine that. But um, – yeah. I did referee the Scandinavian Nines, and I was quite lucky to get the the final. And there was some uh, amazing players, um, believe it or not. Um, that when I say believe it or not, is because they have only been playing the game for you know a couple of years at that point in time. But just some of the hits was, oh, it was um, you know they were bone shakers. And um, yeah, and I I, I love my time in, in Norway, but it is a very expensive country. I'll put it that way. I think the Honey Badger's brother um, played over there from memory but mate you should write a book like honestly like the, like you've done th- yeah just so i can just so i can do my research and f- and know everything that you've done because you've you've been all over mate um <laughs> uh, golden point let's go to brazil uh where brazil rugby league club the uh the Maranga rugby league club uh they're moving they moved to a twenty thousand capacity home ground so the willie david's regional stadium in southern brazil so it's home to football giants uh, like Moranga FC uh, and other 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 club names that I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try. But uh, now the home game to Brazilian Rugby League's Moranga Hawks in 2021. So they had their first, uh, sorry, Brazilian Rugby League officials believe it's the largest stadium used for rugby league in L- Latin America ever, uh, which is absolutely huge. Uh, and the Moranga side hosted um, their first trial there last weekend. So we did hear from uh, our mate Rob Bergen, that the game was unscored, so there was no scoreline. Actually, the teams were mixed up and uh, mid-game just so they could test certain players against, against each other for trial purposes and things like that. Um, but he did also say there'd be a highlights package coming soon, so look out for that on our social media, and we'll share that once it becomes available. And another little piece of news that we got as well was that um, there was also a trial match in in Cuaba, uh, the Molina Rugby League Club, over the weekend. So Molina are, in, are a new club formed close to the border um, or close to coming on board with the Brazilian championship. And these guys, if they get off the ground, they're going to be like the most remote Brazilian club uh, in the competition. And they're very close to the Amazon, which really cool. Wow. Like It's going to be really exciting. So yeah, Brazilian rugby league, there's so much happening over there, man. And I just love watching it grow. And uh, you know, with the women at the world cup later this year as well. Um, I think they've got so much potential. 
I'm a, a huge fan of what Brazil Rugby League are doing at the moment. And, um, you know, a month, month or two back, Mascot Browns didn't stock any of uh, their their merch, but I'm just a massive fan of them. And I, I went and bought a, a training shirt anyway to show my support. And I just, I'm just in awe. Like every time I read news about Brazil Rugby League, it's just another amazing thing after another. And, um, yeah, I wish them all the best for um, their women's team at the World Cup and yeah I hope they do really well I hope so as well man and I'm sure we can confirm we've placed an order uh, with Brazilian Rugby League so we'll be hopefully stocking some of their stuff on ch- on chasingroos.com so look out for that guys uh, final one mate is um this one this is some news that I read today but I don't know if you saw this one yet mate but Peter Volandis has basically confirmed that uh, we'll have a Brisbane 2 in 2023 I, I did say that and um I, I, I put a tweet up saying that um, although I can see a lot of positives out of this um, in terms of, you know, like Brisbane is a great sporting city and to have an NRL game played every weekend in the city is, is fantastic. Um, you know, so when the Broncos are away, the, the second Brisbane team will, will have a home game, you'd, you'd think. Um, but I, I put in my tweet that I hope to see Perth and a second New Zealand yeah. franchise happen in my lifetime. Um, but, yeah, it is exciting because, um, you know, a new franchise and more opportunity for players and hopefully some of the talent comes from some of these emerging international rugby league nations. And, um, yeah, I just think it, it's, it's, it's really exciting, to be honest. Yeah, it is cool. I mean, Brisbane too, is it really expansion? We could have that debate all day and a lot of our listeners uh, would probably have differing views um, Brisbane too, if they come in 17th team, we're going to need an eight, 18th one as well. So hopefully it is a perf for New Zealand. Although very interestingly, mate, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with Greg Peters, who's the CEO of uh, New Zealand Rugby League. And that, that interview will be on the podcast uh, for episode 101. So in a couple of weeks time, and I asked him the question, like, cause we're talking about expansion and things like that. And I asked him, is New Zealand ready for a second NRL team? Uh, so I won't let you know what i won't tell you what the answer was yet but uh really interesting conversation i had a ball it was probably one of my favorite rugby league chats that i've uh, had the opportunity to have on the pod so look out for that one in a couple of weeks i'll definitely be tuning in i can't <laughs> wait to hear it mate speaking of interesting conversations um tony collins uh rugby reloaded podcast is a historian in the uk uh, of of not just rugby league but all of the football codes uh podcast is amazing if you don't listen to it rugby reloaded make sure you do written some great books as well. And the conversation I had with him, which we're about to listen to now, um, just one of the greatest rugby league chats I've ever had. I've learned, I learned a lot. We went on for about an hour, an hour and a half. And it was just, I, I, I just love, I could listen to him speak all day. Um, and yeah, we, basically my idea for the, for interviewing him was he's always, he's obviously one of the most renowned historians in our sport in particular. And, um, but, I kind of believe that historians are kind of clairvoyants as well. So they can tell us what's going to happen in the future based on what's happened in the past. And uh, so mm. I wanted to try and tap into that, so learn about history of not only our sport, but other sports as well, and see what we can learn to ensure that uh, one of his famous quotes, that rugby league never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I wanted to make sure we never miss one again and what we need to do to, to ensure that happens. So fascinating conversation. Um, so, mate, Phil, I just want to say big thanks for jumping on last minute to join me for Golden Points. But uh, it's time for, for my chat with the great Tony Collins. Oh, thanks for having me on, Carbs. It's uh, been a pleasure. Cheers, mate.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, a very special guest with us today, uh, Mr. Tony Collins. How are you, mate? Welcome to Chasing Kangaroos. Great. Thanks for getting me on the show, Michael. Uh, long time listener, uh, big fan of the show. So, uh, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a privilege to be here, mate. I appreciate you saying that because, I, like, I'm a big fan of yours as well. Rugby related for anyone that hasn't listened, fantastic show, and it's actually pretty cool to um to hear your voice and be able to interact with you and 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 and, and respond to you. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, likewise. I mean, I think that's uh, one of the great things I think that's happened over the last couple of years is that there's a there's a real community of rugby league podcasts, mm. um, and so there's there's a there's a really good variety of opinions and and takes on the game and you know the wider context of the game, um, which is really I mean one most it's one of the most interesting things that's happened in rugby league media for a long, long time. I think. Yeah, I think so too. It sort of takes me back to. The very first person I interviewed for this podcast when I was very much a novice, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not a professional after a couple of years, but I was very much a novice. It was episode seven of Chasing Kangaroos, I believe, and I interviewed Nate Gladden, who was, um, who's the host of Rugby League in America podcast, and it just... It, yeah, yeah, I know him well, yeah. All of a sudden, this I'm reminded back all the way back then, very nervous speaking to someone and hearing someone's voice regularly and being able to interact with them. And I'm just suddenly reminded of that. So pretty cool. But um, mate, for look, I'm guessing that most of our listeners know exactly who you are. But for the two guys that don't, can you give us a quick uh, little rundown of who you are, what you've done and, and sort of your CV in rugby league and, and, and sport, I suppose? Um, well, um, from a professional point of view, I'm a, I'm a history professor at... Uh, uh, De Montfort University in Leicester, uh, where there is a centre for sports history. Uh, and I've, I've written a lot on the history of, well, I started off by writing about the history, the origins of rugby league. And my first book was called Rugby's Great Sport, yep. uh, way back 20 years ago. Uh, and then I've written a lot more about the history of the game, but also because I'm a historian, well, I'm a social historian who looks at the role that sport plays in society. So I've not just written about rugby league, I've also written about rugby union. Uh, I've written about soccer and, um, uh, in fact, I've written about the origins of all the different football codes because I think that's one of the interesting things about how football as we know it today, whether it's soccer, league, union, American football, whatever, they all emerged at the same time. So I've, I've, I've done a lot on that. Um, but I also, I mean, I've worked closely with the uh, Rugby Football League here in England on you know, a bunch of historic uh, anniversary projects to develop our National Rugby League Museum. Yep. Um, and the, the the reason why I do, I do have two reasons. One, I'm interested as a historian, as an academic historian. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, the way in which the role that sport plays in in society and in history. But also the other reason I do is because I'm a born and bred leaguing. Um, I went to see Hull. My dad took me to see Hull Kingston Rovers uh, way back in 1969. Far too long to remember. Uh, his dad took him uh, in the 1940s, and his dad took him oh, well. before the First World War. So <laughs> it's it's uh, it's 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 in the blood. Um, so you know, it's both a you know, it's both my. I'm incredibly lucky. It's both my profession and my passion. That is incredible. I um, I mean, I know you're a lover of all the football codes, and but I didn't know that league was your was. I didn't know you were a leaguey or considered yourself a leaguey. So that's pretty cool. You you definitely seem. Oh as, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you seem as passionate or interested in in all of them, which I think makes you like 
the perfect sort of person to be able to look back subjectively <clears throat> and, and sort of understand, you know, where it's all come from and, and what, how it's all sort of panned out over the, the last hundred or so years. Um, well, thanks for saying that because the interesting thing is that I, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't really consider myself a sports fan. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a rugby league fan, but I don't, I, I, you know, I'm a scholar of the other sports and I, I'm interested in their history, but I don't really watch them. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Fair enough. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. But it's, it's, it's good and it's very, um, uh, it's very flattering to say that because I do want to, you know, as a historian, I want, I am objective about all the, you know, the different sports. So I, I don't want it, my historian's view to be coloured by uh, whether I'm, you know, whether I'm a particular fan of the sport or not. It's about the, you know, viewing them all objectively. But obviously, rugby league is a passion. Yes, certainly, and I, I do recommend to any of our listeners that haven't listened to Rugby Reloaded, give it a try. Uh, t- Ten minutes every week, and it's a good little. <laughs> I mentioned this off air, mate, but it's a good little palate cleanser for me in between other longer podcasts that I listen to. It's just like a nice little, you know what to expect and you always learn something new. And I find it very informative, whether it's rugby league or any of the other football codes as well. It's usually rugby league, which is uh, really nice for me. Um, And you've also, like you mentioned that you've written a few books and your most recent one, Rugby League of People's History, there's a quote there that has become very famous from this book. Uh, across social media, in in rugby league circles, anyway, uh, and it and it sort of came up a lot when the Toronto Wolfpack were sort of in the news uh, late last year. And the quote is that rugby league never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Now, when you wrote that, did you think, "Holy shit, this is fantastic! It's going to go viral." No, um, <laughs> no, I, no, no, I didn't. Um, and if I'd known that, I might not have written it. Um, <laughs> no, but I think it, it's it, it's it, it kind of sums up something about the the history of the game when it comes to expansion. Yeah, um, there are a lot of, in a sense, I mean, it's slightly one sided because, in a sense, there are a lot of objective reasons why rugby league hasn't being able to expand in the way that, you know, we would want it to. And yeah. some of those reasons are down to, you know, uh, discrimination by rugby union. Yeah. Some of them are down to the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's no, no matter where it's played, it's not seen as an establishment sport. So it doesn't have those, uh, it doesn't have the support from, you know, institutional support that other sports have. So some of the, some of the reasons for its failure are, uh, 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 Things that it can't do anything about, really, structural. Yeah. But on the other hand, there are plenty of opportunities that have been presented to it pretty much on a plate that have just been uh, ignored, abandoned, or just simply not acted on. And I think that, you know, sadly, the the Toronto Wolfpack episode this year when they were they had to drop out of Super League because of COVID, which is perfectly understandable. Uh, and then there was this whole rigmarole whereby they weren't allowed back in for the 2021 20, season. Mm. Um, it, it's another example of how the the lack of forward planning and foresight um, has, has, has really damaged the game because Toronto proved that rugby league expansion is possible. You know, you get 7,000 people watching a championship game in Canada, uh, you know, second a second level uh, game in Canada, it just shows what opportunities there are out there. So I think that was, and regardless of the the problems, internal problems of 
the wolf pack themselves because obviously yeah. they, they don't appear to have sounded like the, the best run business but that's not much different from any other rugby league club by and large so I think that's an example but I'm, in, in the book yeah you're right I mean the, the most one of the most egregious examples is in the book where in um, 1921 Ebervale Rugby Union Club in the heart of the South Wales uh, Rugby Union country in the valleys they, they write to the Rugby Football League and say uh, look, we're we're thinking of switching codes, yeah. and we'd like to have some confidential uh, discussions with you. Can you give us a guarantee that those discussions will remain confidential? And you know, this is a big issue. Ebervale, a you know strong team, right slap bang in the heart of rugby union territory in South Wales, where you know rugby league really should have uh, um, should have a mass following. And you think, well, this could change, you know, this could alter the balance of forces and open the door for rugby league in a big way in South Wales. But the RFL write back to them and say, oh, sorry, we can't keep the, com- the conversation confidential because we have to report any such conversation to all 30 member clubs of the Rugby Football League. Oh, well. And of course, of course, Ebervale decide they're not going <laughs> to pursue discussions because obviously it's going to leak out the... Welsh Rugby Union will find out and will expel them, suspend them, uh, and do whatever else Rugby Union does to, would do to damage them. So, so that I mean, that's one of the classic examples. But I mean, there are other ones. I mean, there's one. Um, um, there's, in fact, I think I might have um, I might have put this on Twitter a couple of years ago. There's another one where someone in Argentina writes to the RFL in I think 1961 and says. Um, we're keen on rugby league. Uh, we've been involved in rugby union, but we'd really like to start a rugby league club. Um, could you uh, give us any advice on what to do? And so Bill Fallowfield, who was the secretary of the RFL at the time, uh, writes back and says, well, Argentina is a very long way away. There's not really much we can do. <laughs> Have you thought of joining a rugby union club and trying to persuade them to take up the game? Oh, well. Uh, so, which is kind of, it's kind of mind-boggling. And in its uh, in its stupidity. So there's quite a few of those examples, particularly in British rugby. Um, yeah, you, know, you you think you know with a bit better leadership, some of those some of those bigger objective problems that the game faces might have been able to be overcome. Well, why why is it that we appear to have, or our our leaders over the years have appeared to be? I won't say small minded, but they they they're quite happy to play in their own backyard and that's it. I mean, I, I look at, you look at more recent times and we, we go back to Toronto again and including um, Lee as a 12th team in place of Toronto. Like to me, that seems like a, a big step backwards, but it might actually make sense given the current climate of the world to, to keep things a little bit closer to home at the moment. But why, why do you, what, what, where do you think that mentality comes from? Um, I, I, there's a number of reasons, I think. I mean, firstly, the the game, particularly in Britain, was created by the clubs themselves to defend themselves. They, um, the, the Rugby Union's amateur regulations and the Rugby Union's absolute um, hostility to uh, any form of compensation to working-class players meant that the clubs formed the Northern Union as a self-defence mechanism to yeah. stop themselves being picked off one by one. And so it's always basically been, a, the game has always operated in Britain and to some extent in Australia as a cartel of those clubs and they act in their own self-interest. Yeah. And you can see that, you can say that with Toronto because the, um, you know, uh, talk about conflict of interest, that 
here were clubs that had a direct financial interest in Toronto being in the competition because yeah. they didn't want them to have any share of the TV money, uh, having a vote on whether that club should be in. So, um, which, you know, you think in terms of either governance or just long-term strategy is is ridiculous. But nevertheless, that's that's how the game has always been. So there's that... There's a lot of self-interest involved because it is run by the clubs still. Yeah. Um, and there isn't a, an independent leadership that can develop a strategy. As soon as things, as soon as, you know, finances get tight or there's a, you know, there's a, there's a situation that's difficult and tricky, uh, then, you know, clubs inevitably sort of um, uh, settle the wagons and um, keep things as they are. So that that's a big issue. And I also think there's a, there's probably something else going on, and there's this kind of deference towards um, uh, knowing your position. Let's you know, there's a in in British rugby. I think it's true in Australian rugby. You know better than I did. But there's always been that divide between people who see themselves as expansionists and those who see themselves as traditionalists. Yep. And you know, and so not to caricature, people who see themselves as traditionalists in Britain would say, "Look, it's a northern game." We've tried it in London. Now it hasn't really worked. We've tried, you know, we've tried to expand and in Wales, uh, it, it's never really worked. Let's just stick to our knitted and um, and not try and do anything beyond our normal boundaries. And I think that's and, and you know, there's a certain logic in that. I mean, I don't think it, it, I don't think it's a convincing argument. Um, but I think the problem with it is that it also dovetails in the way that the with the way that. Um, I won't say I won't say enemies of rugby league, but people who aren't people in sport who aren't supporters of rugby league like to see rugby league. Uh, you know, they also see this in a sense. The establishment also sees rugby league as a northern sport that can't expand, and uh, you know, is 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 like a, a folk tradition of the north of England, um, and that's very restrictive. So I think that traditionalist idea. Um, actually plays into the kind of structures that have kept rugby league in its place and stops it from expanding. Yeah, yeah. I almost feel like like I'm an expansionist, you know that. But if Super League wants to be purely a Northern sport, a Northern English sport, then go all in on it. You know what I mean? And I don't necessarily think that's the best idea or the best way to go. But if that's what they want and that's what the fans want, then go all in and make it a Northern sport. and and you, you sort of reap what you sow after that. But I, they, they, I just feel like there's no real plan, there's no forward thinking, and they're not sure where, or the leaders that be, or the I guess the clubs are in charge. They're not sure what they want this thing to look like in 5, 10, 20 years' time. They're sort of just worried about what happens in 12 months. And, and you can sort of say, oh, that's what it appe- how it appears from the outside or from the other side of the world anyway. And I can certainly relate to what you're saying. Like in Australia, we there are people, again, it's, you're either an expansionist or a traditionalist. And there are some people here that wish that, you know, you still had the Balmain Tigers and, and the Illawarra Steelers and the Newtown Jets running around. And But the thing is, they still do run around in lower grades. And there's, you know, there's still a place for clubs like that. I've said that many times. Um, but it's it's interesting to see, you know, there's often talk, like we've been talking about expansion of the NRL for over a decade now. And there's been talk recently of Brisbane too, and maybe that is going to be further delayed because of COVID. Um, but whenever, whenever the idea of like Perth or Adelaide comes up, 
like the traditionalists, as we'll call them in this conversation, they're very quick to say, oh, yeah, but it didn't work before. But they don't realize that the reason it didn't work before is because, you know, the game was recently split. It came back together and there were some casual casualties of that. And those clubs were the casualties of the game having to sort of consolidate and come back together. But if they were left, if they were able to continue, there's no reason why they couldn't be successful 25 years later. And I, I truly believe that. Like the the Melbourne Storm is an example of what what we can do um, in an area that is not traditionally strong rugby league wise. And I think especially Western Australia, Perth could have been could have been a mini Melbourne Storm this far down the track. There's there's definitely rugby league juniors. There's a rugby union sort of culture there now because of the Western Force and maybe when the Western Force went under, that was probably another opportunity that we could have taken as a sport to sort of move back into that area, but but we didn't. But I, I, it's it's interesting, you know, to hear that conversation. And it's almost as if like, I don't know if you agree with this, but it's almost as if there's there's you're either an expansionist or you're not, and there's really nothing in between. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I think that's the way that the the debate has um, the debate has kind of d- developed and uh, and hardened into. Which I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure that's particularly useful. I, d- I agree that. Um, I agree with you 100 percent on the fact there's no strategy. Yeah. Um, there's no either in, uh, in in Britain or Australia. Um, there's no strategic plan about where we want to be, as you say, in five or ten years' time, and where if there's going to be expansion, where the target areas are going to be. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, without that, then that just means that the scan short-termism, the short-sightedness of clubs is becomes even worse because then you just change every other year. If something doesn't appear to be working, then let's change it. And then let's yeah. change it. And you can see in Britain, we've had this, the, the issue with, uh, franchising, our, you know, or what's called here licensing. Uh, our club's going to be licensed, or are we going to have promotion and relegation, or you know, what? How is it going to be? Um, how is the competition going to be organised? As soon as one format seems to be struggling, then it's ditched for another format, and yeah. uh, around uh, around we go. I mean, from my personal view, point of view, I think that the um, in Britain at the moment, there's there is a big question about the problems the game faces in its heartland because the level of um, uh, yeah the economy is just tanked in the north of England. It's it's you know the the traditional industries, coal, uh, textiles, docks, they've all disappeared, and the and the north really hasn't fully recovered. And rugby league's in a very poor area of the country. Yeah, and that means a obviously crowds 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 aren't bad. Uh, compared to what they were in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, crowds are pretty good at the moment. But they have gone down since 2008 yeah. uh, when the financial crash happened. So well, there, is a, there is a big job to be done in uh, ensuring up you know, what it's called the heartland. So I think there, there does need to be a lot of attention paid there. And it's not a, you know, it, it's not a bad thing to spend money um, promoting the game and protecting the game in the North. But for me, I would. Um, I would go for a kind of uh, um, what I've called before a grit and glamour approach that you know it, rugby league for the time being needs to shore up its northern heartland, but on, but at the same time it also has to have that element of 
of glamour and excitement and expansion, which is what the Toronto provided. Because if you go back and look at the, you know, the, if you like the, 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 the most exciting periods in British rugby league history, there've always been periods where there has been that kind of, there's been some level of cosmopolitan glamour. Either like in the 1940s and 50s, it was all the Australian players who came over, mm. like Brian Bevan and Harry Bath, uh, Arthur Clues, uh, who gave you know real real glamour to the to the tournament. Or it's been periods like in the 1930s when the French first came into the into rugby league and uh, French teams would tour and the French national team was very strong. And so rugby league's always always British rugby league's always done best when it's been able to combine those elements. And the problem that we've got now is that we've, we've only got one half of those elements there. We don't have that international, that international flavour. Yeah, apart from Catalans, I guess. And, and, you know. Yeah, but I mean, again, Catalans are, I mean, Catalans are a traditional, they're a heartland rugby league team. Yeah. Um, you, know, the, you know, Perpignan's always been a base for the game. Um, so, yeah, they're as much a heartland team, really, as, as Lee or Wigan. It's just that they speak French rather than... Yeah. English with a Lancashire accent. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a little bit like Brisbane too, as ex- as an yeah. example of expansion. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, the the main reason I wanted to chat with you tonight, Tony, and look for me, I um obviously you're a, you're a very well known and respected historian, and in my mind, a historian can also be a clairvoyant. Um. Because you know, you. I you, wish that was true. I wish that was true. <laughs> well, can you tell me the lotto numbers? But no, can, I mean, well, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> you've studied the the past so thoroughly that sometimes you can maybe not predict the future, but you can sort of understand what the future might look like, or predict trends, or understand where it may may not should or should not go. And that's really the really what I wanted to. I know you focus a lot on rugby re- reloaded on the past, but I was hoping that maybe we could talk about the future and. You quote that rugby league never misses an opportunity to misses, miss an opportunity is a good one. And maybe let's talk about how we don't miss opportunities from, from this point onwards, you know? So um, I guess I wanted, yeah, yeah. I wanted to have a bit of a look back and your knowledge of other sports as well comes into play because I want to kind of have a look back at mistakes we've made, how we don't make them again, and what other sports have done done to... Um, to sort of grow their sport and how we can maybe sort of use those sorts of ideas. And the one area that came to mind for me is because like we've kind of hinted at this during this conversation, it's almost come up a couple of times, but I've had discussions in the past about how our, it, it's our working class roots that may hold us back a little. And it might, it, you know, when we talk about not being able to, to move to move into Canada and Argentina and su- Southern England and Perth and Adelaide, Maybe it's because we're sort of we're a little bit hesitant because we sort of feel like we have our place and that's that and that's you know subconsciously you know just the roots that we've sort of come from. But I feel like it is holding us back, and I always talk about how I think rugby league needs to sort of realign itself because in Australia things are certainly starting to change, and we can talk about that a little bit as well. But I, I look back in the past at soccer and the Premier League or football, and because I and you will know a lot more about this than I do, but as I understand, like in the eighties, uh, soccer or football in England was very much like a, a bit of a hooligan sort of game, where you know being in the crowd for for a match wouldn't be the safest place in the world. 
Um, and and that perception really changed in the early 90s when the Premier League sort of started. And now it's become the world game. It's become the people's game. And, you know, obviously it's it's not just Premier League that's made that possible, but they've certainly seen some rewards. And, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years later, and some of the richest sports stars in the world play in the Premier League. And I just sort of wonder how that happened and what sort of lessons our sport can learn as well. Because I think given we, we, given we are so rooted down in that working class and those traditional sort of hardworking values, we can be more of a, of a people's game as well. And, yeah, I'm just w- wondering what your thoughts might be on that. Yeah, um, yeah, massive question. Um, <laughs> In terms of yeah, in terms of the Premier League, I'm always slightly wary about making comparisons yeah. with soccer because soccer is just so huge. It's um, uh, you know it's bigger than every other sport put together. Yeah, and it had such an advance on every other sport in the 19, in the late 19th, early 20th century when it started to become a world game. There's no way that anybody could ever catch up. Yeah, but obviously, having said that, in in Britain. In, in particular, it, it, its early history is, is very, very similar to, to, uh, to rugby and rugby league. Um, you know, in the north of England, both games compete and still compete to some extent today uh, for the same types of audiences, for players from the same background. Um, and, you know, certainly really up until the 1960s when soccer took off as a uh, uh, you know, it took off some of its some of the kind of shackles that it had financially, and you know, maximum wage the maximum wage to players was abolished. A new transfer system was brought in, and then you know, all that culminated in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties with the uh, introduction of the Premier League. It wasn't up until the nineteen sixties, you know, rugby league in certain areas in the north of England, rugby league and, and soccer could compete with each other. Yeah. Um, so it did change, but on the other hand, it's a, in Britain, it's, it's a national, it truly is a national sport. It's played by everybody in every part of the country. So there is that. And obviously, it's, it is genuinely a world game. So, yeah. um, but in terms of rugby league's working class roots, I think that we, um, I think sometimes we, uh, we get a little bit too hung up on that because, yeah, it is a working class game, but that's because working class people were, and still remain the majority of the population and the the breakaway from from rugby rugby union in Britain Australia New Zealand um, was about ordinary people having an equal opportunity to play the game at the highest level that they didn't lose out because they had to take time off work or they're injured uh, that they you know they didn't have to um, uh, they were disadvantaged financially by playing the game at the top level so so that's what it's really about. And there's no way. And so, you know, there's kind of working class, if you like, working class identities, uh, fundamental to how the game was started and, uh, and how it flourished. Um, I, I think, though, the way to look at that from the 21st century perspective is that rugby league was the original equal opportunity sport. The, yeah. the game was, um, the game was actually founded on a principle. Um, not everybody agreed with the reasons for doing that, but basically it's founded on the principle that if you, you were good enough to play at the highest level, you were good enough to be paid for it, and your background, your occupation, 
didn't matter. You should you were equally entitled to play at a top level without disadvantage, wherever you came from. Yeah. And so and that's baked into the game. And I think that explains a lot about the way the game has been where you know, whether it's in Britain, Australia, New Zealand, France, wherever, that's kind of hardwired into the game. Everybody involved in rugby league believes in that essential, you know, uh, it's an essential an equal an equal rights game. Yeah. Um, but if you're good enough, then you can play. Then it doesn't matter what school you went to, what job you do, what the colour of your skin is, then yeah, you can you can play in the team if you're good enough. Um and I think that's the and that's how if you like, that's how the game should be um developing its uh, building on its working class roots. Um so it, it's really about seeing it in, a, in you know, stepping back slightly and seeing it in terms of what did it offer people. Yeah. Uh, it offered them equal opportunities. And in the 21st century, that's really one of sport's biggest calling cards. I mean, you know, you look at any sport and it wants to emphasise the levels of diversity and equality and equal opportunity um, that it has. Well, you know, rugby league did that from literally from day one. And you can see that when you look back and see the, the range of players who played at the highest level, um, you know, uh, and, you know uh, particularly um, non-white players as well. One of, the, one of the amazing things is that in, uh, the amazing facts about rugby is that in, in Britain, Australia and New Zealand, yeah. the first non-white players ever to captain a national team in any sport in those countries uh, were rugby league players. Oh, wow. um, That's fascinating. Steve yeah, uh, Steve Watanay in New Zealand in 1936, Clive Sullivan for Great Britain in 1972, and then Artie Beetson in 1973 for Australia. So, uh, yeah, so, th- so there's, it's not just rhetoric. The game actually, it does actually mean something to the game. It does have uh, an importance. That's not to say there's, there's no racism in rugby league or that there's no problems or anything like that. Clearly there are. But compared to other sports, then, you know, rugby league has a unique record. So I think that's how we should be looking at it. Rather than getting hung up on you know, how, you know, the, 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 whether we're working class or not, the game was there and has always been there and is here today to give all players, whatever background, an equal opportunity to play. And that's the way it should be. And I think that's the way, that's one of the ways that the game should be being promoted. I don't think we make enough of that. Um, either in, in Britain or Australia. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, and I'm not sure what it looks like on your side of the world, but certainly here like in the NRL, because of I guess because of all of that, there's obviously like political correctness is huge in sport at the moment, and there's, you know, we've seen Black Lives Matter and how each sport has sort of responded to that. And over here in Australia, there's a lot of talk about um, our national anthem and things that may, should or should not be changed uh, to sort of reflect um, our f- our first Indigenous people. Um, and every sport, you know, there was some news early, a, a couple of days ago about um, Cricket Australia making a stance and, you know, people for or against that in the media. And we've seen Rugby Union um, change their, their Wallabies jersey for a game uh, to include like an, an Aboriginal pattern. And, you know, parts of the media and fans sort of, there was some backlash against that because, well, they don't have any Aboriginal players. So they felt like it was just being done like for face value kind of thing. 
Whereas, whereas rugby league, the NRL, you know, state of origin and the Australian Kangaroos side, when they make statements like that, it seems there's no, there doesn't seem to be, I mean, there's sometimes backlash, I guess, if players don't want to sing the national anthem, for example, there is some backlash, but it kind of seems like it's okay for rugby league to make, to make stance, a stance like that because, because of the history that we have and just sort of listening to you speak, it sort of makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure if it's like that um, on your side of the world, mate, but certainly over here, um, certainly over here. I mean, like you said, there there is still racism. We're not saying there's no racism in rugby league. I think that has more to do with the fact that, you know, there's still racism in society as a whole. It's not, you can't necessarily confine that to a sport or a, or a place. Um, but certainly as a whole, rugby league is very much, I feel one of the more inclusive sports and I think that's a really good point and that's, you know, a good way for us, something for us to embrace and a good way for us to become the people's game. Um, It's very interesting um, on this side of the world anyway. I know it's very different um, in in Britain, mate, but there are, you look at the two rugby codes over here and I will, I've had recent conversations with people not on the podcast, but, you know, in just in social, my social circles who, you know, live in traditional rugby union areas, have grown up playing rugby union, went to rugby union schools, etc. And they say to me now that they would rather watch the NRL than super rugby. And these are the same people that would have laughed at me 15 or 20 years ago for being a rugby league fan. So I certainly feel like certainly in this country or at least in New South Wales and Queensland, those perceptions are starting to change. And I feel like the NRL as a whole is starting to grow. Um, I'm not sure if it's like that on your side of the world. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting because obviously rugby union is, um, um, is much stronger here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, it's only it's it's only in certain parts of the north of England where you can say that rugby league is is, is much stronger than rugby union. Yeah. Um, so so it is so it, so the balance of forces is, is obviously different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having said that, I think there is something interesting going on in rugby union. But there's much more um, in certain parts. There's much more openness to rugby league. Yeah. And I know from you know people I've had on the podcast because obviously. Um, I do do a bit on uh, on on reviewing as well, and there, the, you know, there's kind of you know maybe a younger generation who went brought up with all the old prejudices in of yeah. rugby union who look on uh, look, from their perspective, and I'm not saying this is right, but they they I think they would look on rugby league as part of a wider rugby family. Yeah. And that they're, you know, they're still rugby union fans, but you know, the league isn't the pariah that it once was. I mean, having said that, I mean, it's uh, as your interview with um, uh, with Collins from Ghana uh, the other week well, yeah. uh, showed there's still a lot of discrimination going on by rugby union authorities in quite a lot in quite a lot of countries. So it's not, um, you know, so so th- things aren't, um, things, you know, the picture's not rosy everywhere. So I think there is a, I think there is a change in attitude, and obviously the other thing is that rugby union um, continues to borrow more and more from rugby league and yeah. to some extent resembles rugby league more in the way in, in the, the growing fluidity of the game 
and the way in which it's it's not so much of a stop-start set-piece game as, as what it once was. I mean, it still is to, compared to Lee, but it's... Uh, I mean, I've said this before and people may, may have heard it, but, um, and that should be surprising because, you know, rugby union is going down the set... Today is going down the same road that rugby league went down uh, 100 years ago, to, trying to explore how to make the game more interesting and exciting for players and spectators. Um, so there, so there is a, so there is a bit more openness. I mean, I don't think that really makes. But having said that, you know, sport is always about much more than sport. It's not just about what goes on in the field. It's about your, you know, people's identity, sense of community, yeah. how they see the world, and and rugby union presents a certain view of the world that you know most of its followers like and identify with and uh and that would you know prevent them prevent a lot of them from ever being able to uh look at rugby league in a um uh in an independent frame of mind i mean yeah obviously vice versa is true as well you know um, a, a lot of us are very one-eyed when it comes to watching rugby union um so I don't think it's going to. Re- I don't think the balance of forces between the two games is really going to alter very much. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think you probably get more of this when a national team is not doing very well. When the Wallabies aren't doing very well. Yeah. I suspect rugby union people are more interested in the NRL. And in Britain, when the English rugby union game is not doing very well, that's normally when you have people saying, "Oh, I wonder whether there's any possibility of merger." And uh, yeah, would it? <laughs> How how much better would the England rugby union team be with all these rugby league players in? And then, of course, once they start being more successful, that's all forgotten about. We hear that sort of thing all the time. It's funny what you say. Like we, um, I think as we're so similar yet so different as codes. And you look at you, you mentioned you know the the rugby codes becoming sort of being part of the same under the same umbrella in some areas, and that doesn't mean one sport or a merger, but you look at like South Africa where rugby league is sort of part of that rugby overall rugby union umbrella now when it comes to government funding and there's there are people, like you said, younger generations, younger people involved in both. But, and, and you know, from an outside looking in, you go, okay, that's interesting. But from a purely rugby league perspective, you don't trust that? Does that make sense? So we're just sort of, because of all this history that we have, we don't trust each other. And, and I speak to a lot, of, a lot of our, we've got a lot of listeners in North America and they don't understand that. They sort of go, like, like why did, why, we don't understand how sports hate each other. Like we all get along over here. And I kind of feel like if rugby, if rugby um, plural was to take off in North America and be popular, it would be, you would see clubs that play both codes and and they like they play sevens nines thirteens and fifteens and you'd have people that re- like players that represent their national side in all of those or most of those or some of those or one of those but they play all of them and i just it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out if it if it plays out anyway but um it's certainly it's certainly very interesting because you get this whole i had a funny made a comment um, again, this is, I don't I don't remember what conversations I have on podcast and off podcast anymore because I have so many rugby league conversations. But I was telling someone that I feel like in fifty years time, rugby union will look like rugby league, 
but rugby league will look like something else. Um, and, and it just seems like it's going to continue sort of going in that fashion. Yeah. That, I, I, yeah. I think that there's, there's, yeah, there's an element of truth to that. Cause I think that, um, um, I think that in, I think this is the interesting thing about uh, places like North America and certain parts of Europe that yeah. don't have any real strong rugby union or rugby league tradition either way. And I know there's a lot of people play rugby union in, in America, but it's not. It's you know it's a minority sport. It's a niche sport, even with all its players in America. Yeah. And so the general the general awareness of sports fans in America is that it's just rugby. Yeah. And. Yeah, uh, and I've got, I've got, I've got no objection to that, um, and because, yeah, obviously, it's, the terminology is slightly different in Australia and Britain. So I know people have said, "Why should I listen to Rugby Reloaded? It's all about rugby, meaning rugby union." Yeah, but in in the north of England, we call rugby league rugby. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, and rugby union is union. So, um, so there's that, there's always that's question of the terminology, uh, but you know, r- rugby league is just as much rugby as a single word. As rugby union, they're two variations of a game that started in the middle of the nineteenth century, and you know the the trajectory of rugby league uh, has been you know on the rugby lines ever since. If you if you like, it's they're, they're two different ways of playing the same game. So, um, uh, so I don't object to you know being rugby, uh, you know, and particularly in places where there, there, there isn't any, you know, uh, rusted on uh, bigotry against rugby league, then, then, then that's absolutely fine. In terms of governing bodies, I'm slightly more cautious about that because, yeah. uh, you know, given the long history of just absolute hostility from rugby union towards rugby league, then I think it's very difficult to see how any organisation could be objective about both codes. Um, in the relationship between former, you know, between, between any alliance, by and large, and particularly between former enemies, there's, there's always a horse and a rider. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's that type of alliance. So, so I think that's very difficult. And I'd, I'd be opposed to having a single governing body because, you know, it's putting the, it would put the, not just the, the sport as it's played on the pitch, uh, uh, in the hands of a uh, of a non rugby league governing body, it also puts that that culture and tradition. Yeah, uh, and I think that's the important thing because, as I said before, that you know, sport is about much more than sport. Um, it's about yeah, it's how you see the world, about your how you got into the game, how it's related to your family, to your community. Yeah. And so all, all these things are just as important as your favourite player or the greatest try you ever score, soft scored. And I think that the, you know, if there was a single governing body for both codes of rugby, sooner or later, because union is stronger around the world, then our culture and our traditions would start to disappear. Yeah. Um, and I think you can already see signs of that in a sense that, in Britain, there's been, there's quite an interesting thing going on in Britain. There's much more awareness now yeah. among Rubuni fans about um, about racism in their game. Yeah, and there's been a um, there's been quite a few things published uh, on uh, online um, about racism in rugby. 
meaning both codes, where, and so Roy Francis, the great whole, great, great Britain player, and the great Hull and Leeds, and then later North Sydney coach, yeah. um, has been held up by people in rugby union as an example of how rugby, in inverted commas, has been, uh, you know, has had these examples of people who stood up against racism. But that's not rugby, that's rugby league. Rugby union, at the time that Roy Francis was coaching Hull to the championship win, um, yeah, black players never appeared in in national rugby union teams. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's two completely different traditions. So I think that's that's one of the dangers that you know if it, if you just see things purely in terms of what goes on in the pitch, then you you start to lose uh, you start to lose your traditions and your cultures. I agree. I I, I don't think there'll ever be one. I don't ever think there'll be a merger. I, look. I think we're more likely to see a third type of rugby than for there to be a merger. And I think that's unlikely as well. So that's how unlikely I think it would be. You, you raise a good point though. Like I guess there's the, the fact that we're still called rugby. I feel like that was an oversight 125 or whatever years ago. Like it, I kind of wish we could go back in time and say, Hey guys, um, maybe consider calling yourself something different. You know, just to just so that there is a difference, because I don't know. You you tell me if I'm wrong, but I kind I feel like when the Northern Union split, um, I don't know if they realised it would be a forever event. Maybe they thought they would sort of come back together yeah. at some point. Is that am I right in saying that? Yeah, there was. It's interesting because there were some people who thought, right, this is it. We're going to. Um uh, you know, it's definitive break. We're never going to go back. We're going to uh, we're going to build our own game. But there was quite a strong body of opinion that hoped that the um, the, the rugby union would come by splitting. The Northern Union would force the rugby union to compromise, and you'd get a situation like in soccer, where the rugby union would be the equivalent of the football association, the governing body for the whole of the game, mm. and the Northern Union would be like the Football League, or today the Premier League, which was the professional organisation of elite clubs. But the rugby union were um, just was simply too hostile and too virulently opposed to any form of compromise. That never uh, that never really worked. Um, but you can still see, even you know, 10 years after the split, there were still um, clubs who were, well, Bradford, for, the Bradford, for example, yeah. uh, you know, a significant chunk of their leadership of their officials wanted to go back to rugby union even in 1906 mm. and they eventually they eventually the club split into a soccer section yeah. and a rugby league section yeah but um but yeah i mean again that's kind of goes back to what we said very early on about the the way in which the the game when it split because it was the collection of clubs it didn't really have any clear strategic view yeah. of what it should be doing um I'm not so sure about changing the name because I had um, on um, oh, the last year, the year before last, um, on Rugby Reloaded, I had Michael Aylwin, who's the, one of the Guardian's Rugby Union correspondents, who's written a very interesting book about rugby union and yeah, sport in general in the in the 21st century, which uh, which is highly recommended, called Unholy Union. Yeah. Uh, but Michael, who's obviously a rugby union uh, writer and fan, said. I can't understand why rugby league keeps calling itself rugby because yeah. surely, surely it's clearly not the same. And I kind of said, well, we're just as much rugby as rugby union is, just yeah. that you you play the game in a different way. 
So I, I think, um, you know, to, to drop the if we drop the word rugby, it would be like admitting defeat and handing over the title to the rugby union. Yeah. And I, I think that would be, I think that would be a mistake, not least because obviously rugby union is following down the path of rugby league. And as yeah. you said, increasingly resembles. We're leading, yeah, uh, that's right. Increasingly resembles r- rugby league. So I think that would, we would lose something. And, and you know, and after all this time, it's difficult to think what an alternative could be. I mean, if the the Northern Union deliberately kept the name rugby because they didn't see themselves as, um, they saw themselves as just developing the rugby tradition. Um, and the rules were the same, even really, it, back then as well. The, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's on, on day one, the rules are exactly the same, and they only slowly changed them. Yeah. And it took them 11 years to get to 13 aside. Although, again, that had been something that had been discussed before the split in rugby union anyway. But I think that, you know, if you look at what, if the Northern Union had decided that they were going to change the name, difficult to know what they would have called it. And also, the yeah. other thing is, um, at the time, as is the case in Australia today, Rugby was at, in, in everyday language in the north of England, where rugby league, was, where the Northern Union was strong. Rugby was just called football. Yeah. Um, you know, my granddad, who was born in 1907, always called rugby league football. Where he was always, we're going, we're going, we're going, we're going to watch the football. Yeah. Uh, or did you see the football on TV? Um, well, we by call, which he meant rugby league. We call it footy over here, and and more yeah. and more young, yeah, exactly, yeah. younger people call it NRL, which is which is obviously wrong. Like, but they'll call, but even yeah. if like Australia plays um, England, they'll say, "Oh, you're watching the NRL tonight," and it's like it's not the NRL. Yeah. It's, it's it's anyway. Just interrupting this chat to hear a word from our sponsor. Guys, Matt Haynes Sport, you know him now. If you don't, check him out, matthaynesport.com. Uh, probably one of the, the absolute uh, brand, logo, jersey design superstar to the rugby league world in terms of developing nations and clubs. He is the man, and uh, we do know he's producing kits now as well, jerseys uh, for some great clubs like Cleveland Rugby League, uh, the Memorial Bears here in New South Wales, plenty of great clubs. He's done a lot of good stuff for Italian Rugby League. The list is endless, and uh, he can help you out as well, matthaynesport.com. Let him know that you are a kangaroo chaser when you place your order or ask for your quote, and he'll give you a sneaky 10% off as well. Uh, so make sure you do that, matthaynesport.com. Now back to my chat, Tony Collins. You're listening to Chasing Kangaroos, the podcast for international rugby league fans. Tony, you are a clairvoyant, mate. You've proved it because I was about to ask you if we sh- if it's too late to change the name. You've already answered that question. And um, I'm actually with you on it as well because you, you hit the nail on the head. What do we change the name to? And the most it's, it's a topic that gets discussed a fair bit and a lot of people ask me. And the most common answer to what we change the name to is um, 13s. And But to me, that's it's like we've lost because... If you if you yeah. call the game thirteens, we're essentially saying that we are a thirteen man version of rugby union. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of like saying we are lesser than, and and you know I'm not a I'm not a big fan of that. Um. I'm kind of glad. Yeah, you're I there. think that's a I yeah I think that's a big issue as well because given the fact the international rugby union board changed its name to World Rugby. Yeah. Um. It kind of gives them uh it puts them on the front foot in claiming our rugby and if. Uh, and I think this is an issue with um, 
uh, in non-English speaking countries where rugby league is often called their team's rugby, obviously in France, which, yeah. but rugby at Yeah. Um, I, I think that's actually a mistake now. Yes. Yeah, um, it's because it makes rugby league sound, particularly now that rugby union sevens is yes. uh, quite a high profile sport because of its role in the Olympics. Yeah. I think it makes us sound like we're just another version of 15s. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I would, you know, if I was, if I was the uh, French Federation of Rugby 13, I'd go back to the, um, uh, I'd go back to the original name and not sound as if we're just a, ver- a different version of the French Rugby Federation. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, I'm so the same. yeah, I think, I, I think that, that emphasis on um, 13s and 9s is actually a mistake. It, 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 you know, if you want to look at it in kind of cold, hard corporate marketing terms, it's, it undermines the rugby league brand. Yeah. And we, we had, here's another opportunity that we, um, that we missed. The, the original Rugby League World Cup was the Rugby World Cup. Like we owned that and um, we gave it away. Very well, that's, that's, I've heard this before. That's not strictly, that's not strictly true because if you look at the oh, programs. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's always the Rugby League World Cup. But they, they, I agree But I agree with what you're saying because it's not correct or it shouldn't have been correct for the International Rugby Union Board to call their tournament the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. And if, again, it goes back to missing an opportunity, if the governing bodies of Rugby League had been a bit more switched on, they would have realised this and objected to the Rugby World Cup trademark. Yeah. Because it's not the Rugby World Cup. It's the Rugby Union World Cup. And by allowing Rugby Union to take control of the name rugby, it puts us, it puts us on the back foot. Yeah. And, and the worst example, I've got to say this, and which is absolutely painful, is the British Lions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the British Lions has become one of the biggest brands in rugby union. Yet, rugby league was known as the Lions for much longer. And for certainly in Britain until the 1970s, yeah. if you talk about the Lions, it would be rugby league. Yeah. And again, because we haven't had the foresight to think about these things, we've allowed the, the Lions logo brand identity that was really part of rugby you know it's an incredibly strong part of rugby heritage um to to go to another sport yeah um it's all i mean it's almost the equivalent of if the the wallabies decided they were going to rebrand as the kangaroos well imagine the kiwis said let's be the all blacks now like how like as if they would let that go like it's exactly like that it's um yeah. it's insane it's insane. It's it's kind of frustrating. Uh, look, and yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think so. It's those like, in a sense, it's those type of what appear to be little things. Yeah. That as they, you know, one piles on top of another, and another comes piles on top of that, and they just start to diminish, um, you know, rugby league's identity. Yeah. It comes down to long term vision again. I think that seems to be the reoccurring issue. If we know. If we knew that a World Cup was part of the the long term future and wasn't going to be staged whenever, then it's something we would have looked at. If we knew how important the international game should be, then 
these sorts of things wouldn't happen. Um, if we knew we needed fans from outside of Northern England and outside of New South Wales and Queensland, then, you know, these sort of things wouldn't happen. It's, it's, it comes down to the long-term planning. Um, and, and, and it begins with calling ourselves rugby. Um, it certainly, it, it begins with that and it still sort of, it still goes, you know, to, to a degree. Well, I also, I have to say the other thing that's kind of follow, just following on from that. Yeah. The, the other worry that there, there could be is that the, the name Rugby League yeah. is taken over but slowly uh, by stealth by Rugby Union. Because, well, ma- Major um, League Rugby in, in the US, for yeah, example. Yeah, Major, Major League Rugby, uh, the... Um, uh, the, the, the French top division is called the, the, the National Rugby League, um, and so it's, and, it's, and I say it's, the problem is that this can be you know by in a sense salami tactics that one rugby union competition calls itself a rugby league, then another one does, then another one does, and then before you know where you are, um, there's all these rugby league tournaments uh, all over the world that are actually. Rugby Union tournament. And aren't World Rugby, I've, I've, they're talking about a World Rugby League as well. With, yeah. yeah so, oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, that's just uh, obviously taking the piss, as we say in Australia. Like, that's obviously very um, done on purpose, you know, if, if it does happen. But I guess, the, it, look, it is an issue. The, the only upside to um, still being called rugby is some of the free marketing that we get. And I'll give you an example um, the guys that started rugby league in Brazil, the way they found rugby league was um, by watching uh, Sonny Bill Williams for, uh, videos on YouTube. Yes, and yeah, that's they, right, yeah. And they went down that that sort of rabbit hole and found vi- footage of him playing this other type of rugby, and that's how rugby league in Brazil literally got started. So there are there are some, I guess there there is some upside to that, but. I, I think, yeah, that's to, to, that's why it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we need to keep rugby in the name and shouldn't be, yeah. you know, shouldn't shy away from being described as uh, as rugby in those countries where, you know, in Brazil. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, there's one percent of sports fans would know the difference between union and league. And, that's right. Yeah, why, which is which is fine. Why which can't is fine by us. why can't we be the rugby in Brazil? And that's why it annoys me when. Uh, I see it on Twitter all the time where, you know, particularly like North Americans will, when the NRL was the first uh, English-speaking sport back on TV in 2020 and North Americans started noticing and they said, oh, I love this Australian rugby. And all the Aussies quickly jumped on and said, no, it's called Rugby League, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And I'm sort of like, just shut up, guy. Like, it, 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 I just, it frustrates me because... We have a chance to own the term elsewhere, and um, if I if I discovered a sport, told told everyone on Twitter that I liked it, and then a thousand people called me an idiot for calling it something that it shouldn't be called, or they think it shouldn't be called, it would turn me off the sport, and I'd stop watching it immediately. So it's kind of yeah. I don't know. We we shoot ourselves in the foot. Uh, maybe it's another missed opportunity, but um, mate, um. I could talk about this stuff with you all night. I want to, I kind of want to know, you know, your knowledge of other sports. So are there other, are there other sports that we can learn from things that maybe are happening in um, the NBA or American football or Indian cricket or anything? Is it, are there things that are happening in other sports or have happened in other sports that 
that rugby league can sort of take a leaf out of their book and and use ideas like that to help grow rugby league? Well, I, I've got to say, I think that um, the sport that we could probably learn most from is is the NBA. Well, is basketball, yeah. particularly the NBA. Yeah. Because the way that the M- the, the NBA is the second biggest sport in the world today. And it's sometimes, um, I, I'm not sure what it's like in Australia, but certainly in Britain, it's not really, that's not really appreciated because you know, basketball is seen as a game, primarily an, an American game. Yeah. But what the NBA has done, I think it's two things. What, what the NBA has done, I think, in over the last 20, 30 years um, is that it has built on its strengths. Uh, it's built on the fact that it's a, um, you know, it's a majority black American game and that it's embraced those traditions yep. and culture um, to make it more appealing. Now, obviously, you know, rugby league's got you know, different, different traditions of culture, but nevertheless, I think that's a, what the NBA has done, has, has understood how that those, those traditions can be used for... Yeah, for incredibly effective marketing campaign, and which goes back to what what we talked about earlier on about how can rugby league, you know, pivot on its working class identity, its working class roots, yeah, uh, to present a, a more modern image. So I think there's that. And the other thing I do, the other thing I think that's very important about the NBA, and this is kind of a, this is slightly different from what we've been speaking about, is that I think one of the issues that rugby league has at the moment in terms of the way it presents itself is that. Most of its marketing material yeah. is is actually quite generic, and a lot of it is based around the physicality of the game. Yeah, uh, the, 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 you know, it's it, it's incredibly exciting. It's a high speed, intense collision sport. Player, you know, great tackling. Players uh, crashing into each other. But other sports marketing themselves like that. Rugby Union does, yeah. uh, and particularly the NFL does. Um, the one thing that rugby league has that those other High, um, high, highly physical contact spots don't have is incredible hand skills. Yeah, that if you look at you know you're never going to get, and this is no disrespect, you're never going to get a prop forward in rugby union who can handle and pass the ball like a rugby league prop. Yeah, and you're never going to get an offensive lineman in the NFL who can pass the ball that long or anything like it. And obviously, they've got different skill sets, so you, you know yeah. it's not. It's not being disparaging to them. It's a different type of game. Yeah. But rugby league has that. Rugby league, you know, rugby league players can handle the ball in a way that basketball players can handle a basketball. And, uh, you know, in many countries around the world, those skills, those handling skills are much more appreciated than the, you know, the big tackle or the big hit. And, you know, uh, for example, in China, it's that one of the reasons why basketball is so important is because it's got, you know, it's the Chinese sports value the the skills that handling uh, can demonstrate, which is why yeah. table tennis is a big game as well. So I think, you know, so the, so the NBA, the examples of that, I mean, you see today the way in which rugby league wingers can leap to yeah. score tries in the corner. It's just, it's the equivalent of, you know, a basketball slam dunk. Yeah. And we should be marketing it on, the, on those, but you know, th- this yeah. is just an incredible sight that you cannot see in any other sport. Yeah. And so I think from, you know, from a rugby league perspective, the NBA 
yeah, rather than the NFL, everybody says, oh, we've got to learn from the NFL and we'll go and see how they do the market and stuff like that. Um, it's kind of a, it, it, it's so, again, like soccer in Britain, it's, the NFL is so huge. Yeah. It's, um, uh, you know, it, it, you know, we're not that big. Um, but the NBA has managed to make the journey from being, you know, the third or fourth of the big sports in, in the States to being, you know, if you like, the biggest American sport in the world. And, uh, and that's, a, yeah. that's a journey we, we, we should try and understand and learn from. It is huge over here, I can tell you. Like, you are almost as likely to see someone wearing an LA Lakers jersey on the streets of Sydney as you are, like, a Parramatta Eels jersey. Like, it's that popular. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I think it's, like, just a trendy thing at the moment. It's on very much on trend. And I think where the the NBA have made ground on the NFL and baseball, for example, in particular, or baseball as well, right, uh, is the way they market and promote individual players. And I don't know if that's because yeah. there are less players on a team. So you have, the, the you know, you've got five personalities that can really shine. And my, this started with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, right? And that sort of yeah, that's uh, right. basketball yeah, yeah. card era. But like with an NFL player, A, there's, there's so many people in a team and different squads for defense and offense and special teams and what have you. But you also have... Um, the, the Players wear helmets, right? So a player for, you know, the New England Patriots could walk down the street and your your average sort of sports fan may not recognize them because they're used to seeing yeah. them wearing a helmet. Whereas with basketball, with NBA, they're very much, they're very visible. Everyone knows what LeBron James looks like. And that's a bad example, but because he's obviously the biggest name in the sport, but yeah. they are much more visible. And this is something that... um a reason why they've improved on Major League Baseball as well, because Major League Baseball are very, uh, they're very closed with their media, their footage. It's it's all theirs. They own it, and they they don't really release it. Whereas NBA is kind of open with that. And this whole this whole idea of marketing the individuals, I think, is something that we really need to start to to look at and and exploit in rugby league as well, because. I've seen this start to happen, and at first I sort of questioned it, and it made me realize that I'm probably a little bit old-fashioned, right? So I'll give you an example. My brother-in-law, when I first met him, he was a St. George fan, a St. George Laura fan like me, and it was one of the reasons why we got on really well, and we still get on very well. But after a while, he started supporting the Parramatta Eels, and I sort of said, what are you doing, mate? And he goes, I just really like Jared Hayne. So, like, I support the Parramatta Eels now. And I was like, you're crazy. Like, you need to be loyal to your team. Yeah. And, and then at the end of last year, at the end of 2020, he says to me, so I've just gotten used to the fact that he's supporting the Parramatta Eels instead of the Dragons. And at the end of 2020, he says, oh, I think I'm going to support the Melbourne Storm next year. And I go, why? Because they're winning. And he goes, no, because I really like Cameron Munster. And it sort of yeah. clicked to me that, for, for, like, I've been banging on about how you need to stick to your team through thick and thin. And that's something that I always believe in, but I realize that that's very old-fashioned of me. And you look at the, you look at the, the Gen Zs and, and below, and they're going to follow players, not teams. And I can see that more and more. And I just feel like um, it's something that we need to learn now and embrace that. Yeah, no, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you're absolutely right because one of the things that social media has done is meant that it's much easier to follow 
individual players, individual stars, and if you like, develop a relationship with them in yeah. a way that you couldn't before. And I think I think you're right. And what and and in a sense, this has happened since the advent of digital satellite TV in the 1980s, 1990s. That yeah. The traditional way of seeing sports supporters like you know, me or you, it's it's one team for life because you know it's connected to where you grew up or your friends or your family or whatever. Um, beyond the immediate vicinities of those clubs, that's not really a thing. People follow teams for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. But primarily because they identify with individuals because yeah. they're because of their style of playing, because they're famous, because their friends like them or, or whatever. And that's the way, and it's to some extent, that's reflecting the way that sport has changed from being a, a kind of, uh, you know, sports teams are representative of their communities and that it's community rivalry that is translated into sporting terms. That has changed as sport has become more and more popular. Sport has become part of the entertainment industry. And, you know, people follow teams or sports for the same reason that they follow, you know, celebrities in Hollywood, mm, yeah. uh, whether stars, directors, because it's part of the entertainment world. It's not part, it's, they don't see it as part of their, you know, you know daily part of their lives because they go to work and everybody, everybody wants to talk about how the team did at the weekend or because it's in the local newspaper every day. It's a different. It's a completely different relationship to sport that older generations have been used to. And yeah. again, I think that's a that's an absolutely massive lesson that w- the game really needs to learn very quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's and and social media drives a lot of that. Unless you have incredibly good social media, um, you're going to lose out. So yeah, I, I'd agree 100 percent that the. The future of sport, uh, in t- so far as we can tell what it's going to be you know, over the next uh, decade or so, is going to be based around uh, individuals and you know, celebrity star recognition. Yeah, it's not um, just, it's, yeah. sport culture is not just what happens on the field or on the court. It's everything yeah. else. And I used to joke around with a mate of mine who follows the A-League, um, our soccer competition over here. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. There was, so there was a time when, um, you know, rugby league players were on the back page of the newspaper for the wrong reasons every day. And he would sort of give me some stick about that. And I'd say, mate, the only reason, like soccer players probably do it too, but nobody cares. So it's not on the back page. So people actually care yeah, about exactly, yeah. people actually, you know, it's, it's almost a positive that, uh, not positive that they're doing the wrong thing, but positive that they have the attention that they have, you know, it's, it's, you certainly can spin that in a way like the sport has positive, has attention and we need to learn how to use that attention. Mate, this has been, um, we've I've probably taken way too much of your time. So I thank you very much, Tony. This has been a great chat. I think we've learned in an, in a nutshell, the things that I've taken from this conversation, things that we've learned from the past and from other sports that we need to take into the future. Number one, we need to own the term rugby. Uh, number two, we need to have a plan. Uh, and we need to somehow all come together around the world and, and put a plan together, a long-term vision. And number three, we need to market our unique offering and our and our individuals as well. I think those are the, the three big takeaways um, for the sport, how we no longer, how we never miss an opportunity again. Have I missed anything? Is there anything else you wanted to say before we um before we do say goodbye, mate? No, I, I, no, I, I, I think you've summed it up perfectly. I think there's, if you like, in a sense, those are the three lessons that we can learn. In terms of marketing the game, 
those are probably the three most important lessons we can learn yeah. uh, fr- from the history of the game and and fr- from other sports as well. Because I think that's the that's the other thing. You know, let's not be blinkered. We can learn we can learn lots from other sports, and we need to. Uh, yeah. You know, we're in a you know it's the twenty first century. It's a completely new era for sport and rugby league. Despite the difficulties that it's faced, either internally or externally, it's it's really well positioned to take advantage of, of, of that new world. We're a, we're a, if you like, we're a, we're a, a small, big sport. We've got all the characteristics of big sports like soccer and the NFL in terms of, you know, we can generate crowds, got real community interest. It's a fantastic spectacle. Yet we're also small enough to be able to pivot and, cha- and change direction to, to make the most of that. And, you know, we really, you know, the, the governing bodies of the game really need to start figuring out how we can do that and take advantage of the opportunities that the game has ahead of it. Couldn't agree more, mate. Uh, Tony, tell the listeners uh, where they can find you, where they can listen to you, where they can buy your books, whatever you want to plug. Um, now, now's your oh, chance. Well, you can find, if you go to uh, rugbyreloaded.com, you can find um, all the back issues of the, um, sorry, back episodes of the yep. Rugby Reloaded podcast. Uh, and there's also links to um, all my books, including the latest Rugby League of People's History. So, um, yeah, I mean, and also, yeah, thanks to you, Michael. This has been a fantastic, a fantastic chat. Uh, I love the podcast, and it's you know, it's great to get together and have these types of discussions amongst Rugby League fans about you know how we can take the game forward. Mate, I certainly appreciate your time. I appreciate you all the work you've done. I can't believe it's taken me almost a hundred episodes. To get you on the show, we need to do this again sometime because it's been fascinating. So, Tony Collins, thank you for chasing kangaroos with me. Yeah, and thank you. Chasing Kangaroos is brought to you by Matt Haynes Sport. We are mixed and produced by Paul Murchison. Our theme music was written and recorded by Ash Barco and Ricky Cancino. The podcast is hosted by me, Michael Carboni, and The Biggest Tiger. Views are our own. Music.